Chapter 18, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 Character of Constantine and His Sons, Part 2. Read by Claude Banta, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. July 2007. By the death of Crispus, the inheritance of the empire seemed to devolve on the three sons of Fausta, who have been already mentioned under the names of Constantine, of Constantius, and of Constans. These young princes were successively invested with the title of Caesar, and the dates of their promotion may be referred to the tenth, the twentieth, and the thirtieth years of the reign of their father. This conduct though it tended to multiply the future masters of the Roman world, might be excused by the partiality of paternal affection. But it is not so easy to understand the motives of the emperor, when he endangered the safety both of his family and of his people, by the unnecessary elevation of his two nephews, Dalmatius and Hannibalanus. The former was raised, by the title of Caesar, to an equality with his cousins, in favor of the latter, Constantine invented the new and singular appellation of Nobilissimus, to which he annexed the flattering distinction of a robe of purple and gold. But the whole series of Roman princes, in any age of the empire, Hannibalanus alone was distinguished by the title of king, a name which the subjects of Tiberius would have detested as the profane and cruel insult of capricious tyranny. The use of such a title, even as it appears under the reign of Constantine, is a strange and unconnected fact, which can scarcely be admitted on the joint authority of imperial medals and contemporary writers. The whole empire was deeply interested in the education of these five youths, the acknowledged successors of Constantine. The exercise of the body prepared them for the fatigues of war and the duties of active life. Those who occasionally mention the education or talents of Constantius allow that he excelled in the gymnastic arts of leaping and running, that he was a dexterous archer, a skillful horseman, and a master of all the different weapons used in the service either of the cavalry or of the infantry. The same assiduous cultivation was bestowed, though not perhaps with equal success, to improve the minds of the sons and nephews of Constantine. The most celebrated professors of the Christian faith, of the Grecian philosophy, and of the Roman jurisprudence, were invited by the liberality of the emperor, who reserved for himself the important task of instructing the royal youths in the science of government and the knowledge of mankind. But the genius of Constantine himself had been formed by adversity and experience. In the free intercourse of private life, and amidst the dangers of the court of Galerius, he had learned to command his own passions, to encounter those of his equals, and to depend for his present safety and future greatness on the prudence and firmness of his personal conduct. His destined successors had the misfortune of being born and educated in the imperial purple. Incessantly surrounded with a train of flatterers, they passed their youth in the enjoyment of luxury and the expectation of a throne, nor would dignity of their rank permit them to descend from the elevated station from whence the various characters of human nature appear to wear a smooth and uniform aspect. 
The indulgence of Constantine admitted them, at a very tender age, to share the administration of the empire, and they studied the art of reigning at the expense of the people entrusted to their care. The younger Constantine was appointed to hold his court in Gaul. His brother Constantius engaged that department, the ancient patrimony of their father, for the more opulent but less martial countries of the east. Italy, the provinces of western Illyricum, and Africa were accustomed to revere Constance, the third of his sons, as the representative of the great Constantine. He fixed Dalmatius on the Gothic frontier, to which he annexed the government of Thrace, Macedonia, and Greece. The city of Caesarea was chosen for the residence of Hannibalanus, and the provinces of Pontus, Cappadocia, and Lesser Armenia were destined to form the extent of his new kingdom. For each of these princes a suitable establishment was provided. A just proportion of guards, of legions, and of auxiliaries was allotted for their respective dignity and defense. The ministers and generals, who were placed about their persons, were such as Constantine could trust to assist, and even to control these youthful sovereigns, in the exercise of their delegated power. As they advanced in years and experience, the limits of their authority were insensibly enlarged, but the emperor always reserved for himself the title of Augustus. And while he showed the Caesars to the armies and provinces, he maintained every part of the empire in equal obedience to its supreme head. The tranquility of the last fourteen years of his reign was scarcely interrupted by the contemptible insurrection of a camel-driver in the island of Cyprus, or by the active part which the policy of Constantine engaged to assume in the wars of the Goths and Sarmatians. Among the different branches of the human race, the Sarmatians form a very remarkable shade, as they seem to unite the manners of the Asiatic barbarians with the figure and complexion of the ancient inhabitants of Europe. According to the various accidents of peace and war, of alliance or conquest, the Sarmatians were sometimes confined to the banks of the Tanias, and they sometimes spread themselves over the immense plains which lie between the Vistula and the Volga. The care of their numerous flocks and herds, the pursuit of game, and the exercise of war, or rather rapine, directed the vagrant motions of the Sarmatians. The movable camps or cities, the ordinary residence of their wives and children, consisted only of large wagons drawn by oxen, and covered in the form of tents. The military strength of the nation was composed of cavalry, and the custom of their warriors to lead in their head one or two spare horses enabled them to advance and to retreat with a rapid diligence which surprised the security and alerted the pursuit of a distant enemy. Their poverty of iron prompted the rude industry to invent a sort of carace, which was capable of resisting a sword or javelin, though it was formed only of horses' hoofs cut into thin and polished slices, carefully laid over each other in the manner of scales or feathers, and strongly sewed up upon a garment of coarse linen. The offensive arms of the Sarmatians were short daggers, long lances, and a weighty bow-bow with a quiver of arrows. They were reduced to the necessity of employing fish-bones for the points of their weapons. But the custom of dipping them in venomous liquor, that poisoned the wounds which they inflicted, is alone sufficient to prove the most savage manners, since a people impressed with a sense of humanity would have abhorred so cruel a practice, and a nation skilled in the arts of war 
would have disdained so impotent a resource. Whenever these barbarians issued from their deserts in quest of prey, their shaggy beards, uncombed locks, the furs with which they were covered from head to foot, and their fierce countenances seemed to express the innate cruelty of their minds, inspire the more civilized provincials of Rome with horror and dismay. The tender Ovid, after a youth spent in the enjoyment of fame and luxury, was condemned to a hopeless exile on the frozen banks of the Danube, where he was exposed, almost without defense, to the fury of these monsters of the desert, which whose stern discipline he feared that his gentle shade might hereafter be confounded. In his pathetic but sometimes unmanly lamentations, he describes in the most lively colors the dress and manners, the arms and inroads of the Gitae and Sarmatians, who were associated for the purpose of destruction. And from the accounts of history there is some reason to believe that these Sarmatians were the Jazigae, one of the most numerous and warlike tribes of the nation. The allurements of plenty engaged them to seek a permanent establishment on the frontiers of the empire. Soon after the reign of Augustus, they obliged the Dacians, who subsisted by fishing on the banks of the river Tis or Tibiscus, to retire to the hilly country, and to abandon to the victorious Salmatians the fertile plains of the upper Hungary, which are bounded by the course of the Danube and semicircular enclosure of the Carpathian Mountains. In this advantageous position, they watched or suspended the moment of attack, as they were provoked by injuries or appeased by presence. They gradually acquired the skill of using more dangerous weapons, and although the Sarmatians did not illustrate their name by any memorable exploits, they occasionally assisted their eastern and western neighbors, the Goths and the Germans, with a formidable body of cavalry. They lived under the irregular aristocracy of their chieftains, but after they had received into their bosom the fugitive Vandals, who yielded to the pressure of the Gothic power, they seem to have chosen a king from that nation, and from the illustrious race of the Astingi, who had formerly dwelt on the shores of the northern ocean. The motive of enmity must have inflamed the subjects of contention, which perpetually arise on the confines of warlike and independent nations. The Vandal princes were stimulated by fear and revenge. The Gothic kings aspired to extend their dominion from the Euxine to the frontiers of Germany, and the waters of Maros, a small river which falls into the Tice, were stained with the blood of the contending barbarians. After some experience of the superior strength and numbers of their adversaries, the Sarmatians implored the protection of their Roman monarch, who beheld with pleasure the discord of the nations, but who was justly alarmed by the progress of the Gothic arms. As soon as Constantine had declared himself in favor of the weaker party, the haughty Ororic, king of the Goths, instead of expecting the attack of the legions, boldly passed the Danube and spread terror and devastation through the province of Maesia. To oppose the inroad of this destroying host, the aged emperor took the field in person, but on this occasion either his conduct or his fortune betrayed the glory which he had acquired in so many foreign and domestic wars. He had the mortification of seeing his troops fly before an inconsiderable detachment of the barbarians who pursued them to the edge of the fortified camp, and obliged him to consult his safety by a precipitate and ignominious retreat. The event of a second and more successful action required the honor of the Roman name, and the powers of art and discipline prevailed, after an obstinate contest, 
over the efforts of irregular valor. The broken army of the Goths abandoned the field of battle, the wasted province, and the passage of the Danube. And although the eldest of the sons of Constantine was permitted to supply the place of his father, the merit of victory, which diffused universal joy, was ascribed to the auspicious counsels of the emperor himself. He contributed at least to improve this advantage by his negotiations with the free and warlike people of Chernosis, whose capital, situated on the western coast of the Tauric or Crimean peninsula, still retained some vestiges of a Grecian colony, and was governed by a perpetual magistrate, assisted by a council of senators, emphatically styled the fathers of the city. The Chersonites were animated against the Goths by the memory of the wars, which in the preceding century they had maintained with unequal forces against the invaders of their country. They were connected with the Romans by the mutual benefits of commerce. As they were supplied from the provinces of Asia with corn and manufactures, which they purchased with their only productions, salt, wax, and hides. Obedient to the requisition of Constantine, they prepared, under the conduct of their magistrate Diogenes, a considerable army, of which the principal strength consisted in the crossbows and military chariots. The speedy march and intrepid attack of the Chersonites, by diverting the attention of the Goths, assisted the operations of the imperial generals. The Goths, vanquished on every side, were driven into the mountains, where, in the course of a severe campaign, above a hundred thousand were computed to have perished by cold and hunger. Peace was at length granted to their humble supplications. The eldest son of Araric was accepted as the most valuable hostage, and Constantine endeavored to convince their chiefs, by a liberal distribution of honors and rewards, how far the friendship of the Romans was preferable to their enmity. In the expressions of his gratitude towards the faithful Chersonites, the emperor was still more magnificent. The pride of the nation was gratified by the splendid and almost royal decorations bestowed on their magistrate and his successors. A perpetual exemption from all duties was stipulated for their vessels which traded to the ports of the Black Sea. A regular subsidiary was promised of iron, corn, oil, and of every supply which could be useful, either in peace or war. But it was thought that the Sarmatians were sufficiently rewarded by the deliverance from impending ruin, and the emperor, perhaps with too strict an economy, deducted some part of the expenses of the war from the customary gratifications which were allowed to that turbulent nation. Exasperated by this apparent neglect, the Sarmatians soon forgot, with the levity of barbarians, the services which they had so lately received, and the dangers which still threatened their safety. Their inroads on the territory of the empire provoked the indignation of Constantine to leave them to their fate. And he no longer opposed the ambition of Jeberic, a renowned warrior, who had recently ascended the Gothic throne. Weissamar, the Vandal king, whilst alone and unassisted, he defended his dominions with undaunted courage, was vanquished, and slain in a decisive battle which swept away the flower of the Sarmatian youth. The remainder of the nation embraced the desperate expedient of arming their slaves, a hardy race of hunters and herdsmen, by whose tumultuary aid they revenged their defeat and expelled the invader from their confines. But they soon discovered that they had exchanged a foreign for a domestic enemy 
more dangerous and more implacable. Enraged by their former servitude, elated by their present glory, the slaves, under the name of Limigantes, claimed and usurped the possession of the country which they had saved. Their masters, unable to resist the ungoverned fury of the populace, preferred the hardships of exile to the tyranny of their servants. Some of the fugitive Sarmatians solicited a less ignominious dependence under the hostile standard of the Goths. A more numerous band retried beyond the Carpathian Mountains among the Cadi, their German allies, and were easily admitted to share a superfluous waste of uncultivated land. But a far greater part of the distressed nation turned their eyes towards the fruitful provinces of Rome. Imploring the protection and forgiveness of the emperor, they solemnly promised, as subjects in peace and as soldiers in war, the most inviolate fidelity to the empire which should graciously receive them into its bosom. According to the maxims adopted by Probus and his successors, the offers of this barbarian colony were eagerly accepted, and a competent portion of lands in the provinces of Pannonia, Thrace, Macedonia, and Italy were immediately assigned for the habitation and subsistence of 300,000 Sarmatians. By chastising the pride of the Goths, and by accepting the homage of a suppliant nation, Constantine assembled the majesty of the Roman Empire, and the ambassadors of Ethiopia, Persia, and the most remote countries of India congratulated the peace and prosperity of this government. If he reckoned, among the favors of fortune, the death of his elder son, of his nephew, and perhaps his wife, he enjoyed an uninterrupted flow of private as well as public felicity till the thirtieth year of his reign, a period which none of his predecessors since Augustus had been permitted to celebrate. Constantine survived that solemn festival about ten months. At the mature age of sixty-four, after a short illness, he ended his memorable life at the palace of Acreon, in the suburbs of Nicomedia, whither he had retired for the benefit of the air, and with the hope of recruiting his exhausted strength by the use of warm baths. The excessive demonstrations of grief, or at least of mourning, surpassed whatever had been practiced on any former occasion. Notwithstanding the claims of the senate and people of ancient Rome, the corpse of the deceased emperor, according to his last request, was transported to the city which was destined to preserve the name and memory of its founder. The body of Constantine adorned with the vain symbols of greatness, the purple and diadem, was deposited on a gold bed in one of the apartments of the palace, which for that purpose had been splendidly furnished and illuminated. The forms of the court were strictly maintained. Every day at the appointed hours, the principal officers of the state, the army, and the household, approaching the person of the sovereign with bended knees and a composed countenance, offered their respectful homage as seriously as if he had still been alive. From motives of policy, this theatrical representation was for some time continued, nor could flattery neglect the opportunity of remarking that Constantine alone, by the peculiar indulgence of heaven, had reigned after his death. But this reign could subsist only in empty pageantry, and it was soon discovered that the will of the most absolute monarch is seldom obeyed, when his subjects have no longer anything to hope from his favor, or to dread from his resentment.
the same ministers and generals, who bowed with such reverential awe before the inanimate corpse of their deceased sovereign, were engaged in secret consultations to exclude his two nephews, Dalmatius and Hannibalanus, from the share which he had assigned them in the secession of the empire. We are too imperfectly acquainted with the court of Constantine to form any judgment on the real motives which influenced the leaders of the conspiracy, unless we should suppose that they were actuated by a spirit of jealousy and revenge against the praefect Alblavius, a proud favorite who had long directed the counsels and abused the confidence of the late emperor. The arguments by which they solicited the concurrence of the soldiers and people are of a more obvious nature, and they might with decency, as well as truth, insist on the superior rank of the children of Constantine, the danger of multiplying the number of sovereigns, and the impending mischiefs which threatened the republic from the discord of so many rival princes, who were not connected by the tender sympathy of eternal affection. The intrigue was conducted with zeal and secrecy, till a loud and unanimous declaration was procured from the troops, that they would suffer none except the sons of their lamented monarch to reign over the Roman Empire. The younger Dalmatius, who was united with his collateral relations by the ties of friendship and interest, is allowed to have inherited a considerable share of the abilities of the great Constantine. But on this occasion he does not appear to have concerted any measure for supporting, by arms, the just claims which himself and his royal brother derived from the liberality of their uncle. Astonished and overawed by the tide of popular fury, they seem to have remained, without the power of flight or of resistance, in the hands of their implacable enemies. Their fate was suspended till the arrival of Constantius, the second, and perhaps the most favored, of the sons of Constantine. End of chapter 18, part 2